You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Jonathan Megan, a computer scientist working in the healthcare industry and specializing in distributed systems. We talk monoliths, microservices, modularity, and interviewing, and we completely forget to mention his upcoming book, which is titled Drama-Free Concurrent Topologies, Cooperative Patterns in the Actor Model. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, Team Monolith. Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I'm really excited to be here. It's a joy and a pleasure. Huge fan of this podcast. Awesome. Wow, thanks. Well, let's start with an easy question. How do we solve all these problems with distributed systems, and why is the answer the actor model? Okay, so that's not <laughs> an easy question, my man. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, not. I've heard distributed systems are really easy, right? Yeah, distributed systems. So actually, you know what's funny is that I was actually having a discussion at work yesterday, and someone was talking about how we should move to microservices. And I said... Uh-huh. Hey, why? You know, and they were like, "Well, because you know." Rah, rah. And I was like, "Listen, if the, if you don't have a problem that's solved by microservices, don't move to microservices." And they were like, "Well, you're the distributed systems guy," and I was like, "That is true, but I'm also team monolith, right?" <laughs> Just because it's so much easier. Okay, so let's talk about that. So microservices are a pretty new phenomenon. Like I remember, like ten years ago, I was working at a job and we had services. And there were like more than one. It wasn't a monolith. It was a Java shop. And I mean, I think we had like, I don't know, like three or four services or something like that. And there wasn't really a big push to make more services like for its own sake. And that seems to me to be the big difference with the microservice idea is the idea is like, let's make services for the sake of making more services because we think that's just like a good idea. But it sounds like you wouldn't agree. I would not agree because... When you are running a distributed system, it requires a certain level of operational maturity. And if you want to get down to brass tacks about why distributed systems require certain levels of operational maturity, this is just running it. We haven't even gotten to building it yet, right? (laughs) Sure. Even just running the distributed system like day two and beyond, I really recommend some of the work by Charity Majors. Charity Majors work on observability is really good not only because of, you know, as the originator of the term observability, charity majors knows what they're talking about, but also charity's ability to relate re- relate observability and what, what they talk about to various other adjacent topics, I find really, really valuable and really, really instructive, right? So most companies that I know that are above a certain size do not have the organizational agility and resources in place to deal with a microservices deployment of any real complexity, right? And we've seen microservices go well, we've seen microservices go poorly, we've seen it go well, but explode in complexity. I mean, how many individual services does Amazon have, for example, like AWS, right? A, a lot, it's I'm just, guessing. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. If yeah. you see a map of their microservices, it's just a ball of yarn right at that point. So I think you've seen it go both ways. So the argument that I hear for microservices is that, well, one of the arguments I hear is Conway's law. It's like, if you don't, Conway's law being software and the organization will end up organizing themselves in the same way, whether you want them to or not. So if your organization is broken down into, you know, small teams, your software is going to end up organizing itself that way. Now, 
I sort of, I buy that from a code organization perspective. Like certainly everywhere I've worked, you have that, that has, you know, small teams of like three to five, you end up having those teams of three to five sort of be the de facto owners of certain parts of the code base, even if not formally, just because they're the ones who know how it works, because they're the ones working on it. But I don't, what I'm missing is why that, why it would follow from that, that that's how your servers need to be organized. I agree with you. But like servers are, <laughs> it's a different consideration. Like obviously you can have a monolith where you have teams of three to five that know how certain parts of the monolith works and are the de facto code owners of certain parts of the code base of that monolith. But why do you have to go to servers, you know, distributed systems just because that's the way the code's organized? So the reason I like your critique just now and your hardware pushback, right? The aspect of pushing back on this and saying, well, we don't, if microservices aren't giving you anything, why would you make it more complicated to build, manage, run, right? Like, why would you do those things? And the reason I like the hardware angle pushback is because we have seen really well-written monoliths produce remarkable results. Sure. And we have seen well-written microservices produce also remarkable results. However, the number of, I would say that the number of poorly written monoliths causing problems, right? And the number of, you understand where I'm going with this, right? The, <laughs> the number of poorly written monoliths and the number of poorly written microservices trying to deliver a single capability, those are two figures that I'm not sure how to compare, right? And yeah. if you look at, I mean, okay, so so let's take an extreme example of really interesting modularity capabilities, right? Sure. That would be the Beam, right? Uh, Beam languages, let's say Elixir or Erlang. Let's just say Elixir for right now because it's prettier and Erlang, I find, looks like a typewriter threw up. <laughs> it's just me though it's just me so if you have elixir you can organize your code into effectively you you've been able to because of otp for a long time right to organize your code into what are effectively microservices within a code base right either that whether that be through gen server or some other behavior or there are a couple different ways to do it but you basically get microservices within a code base so you have the benefits of the modularity and you have the benefits of being able to separate out concerns and manage things independently and work on things independently and change things independently without the operational overhead of, I now need to deploy five services to five different, you know, server clusters, right. In order to achieve this one thing I'm trying to do. And I think that that's one extreme example. I'm glad you used the term modularity because that's, that's a term that it's a little bit unfortunate. I think that th this term used to mean something pretty s different than what it does today. And the old meaning, I think was more important and more useful than the modern term, because the modern term of like, well, people don't really say modularity much anymore. Usually what people say are modules and what they mean by modules are files, right? right? Like, like usually when people are talking about modules in the like, programming language sense for example they just mean like a file or maybe a programming language has some you know way to subdivide beyond that but people don't really use it and it's i guess it's like files plus you can sort of import and export selectively from those files as opposed to like the c style of include where it just splats the entire thing and there's just like you know as if you copy pasted the whole file in yes so they're like slightly improved files but really i mean the original idea of modularity as i understand it is it was really all about information hiding yes that was the whole point is like make this thing intentionally a black box and only expose certain parts so that you don't have exploding complexity because other parts of the system are literally incapable of relying on those implementation details which means 
you can change those implementation details later and sort of keep the complexity under control. And yeah, one way to do that is a server. You can say like, look, this server only exposes an API endpoint for these operations and therefore all this complexity is hidden within the server. Okay, fair enough. But another way to do that, like you said, is to just have programming languages, like higher level programming languages that have concepts like this as simple as a module or as advanced as, I mean, there's, I guess, advanced in several different directions is like standard ML modules. And then there's like, but yeah, like uh, Elixir and Erlang, you know, you can have this entire stateful, they, they call it a process, but yeah, like this, this thing that basically has about all the power of a server, but without the hardware part where it's, it's all within the, the beam VM. I'm reminded of my former coworker, uh, James Gray, I wrote an article on Neuradic's blog some years ago, five plus years ago now, basically making the case that maybe Erlang and Elixir are like the best modern incarnations of the original Alan Kay definition of object orientation, which which he described as like basically rather than like objects are supposed to be servers, essentially, like conceptually. It's supposed to be like servers all the way down and each individual object is no less powerful than an entire computer in terms of the the state that it can represent and all that stuff. Um, it's not really where OO has ended up, at least in the modern definition, but <laughs> but that was uh, apparently his original idea for the term. Yeah, and that, that really jives with the Anthony Eden quote, uh, which I believe is from about 10 years ago, that all your objects want to grow up to be actors, right? Ha! Huh. And I, I love that one. I love that quote. I think I'm, I'm sure you can find that all your objects want to grow up want to grow up to be actors, right? And that's just such a good quote. The other thing I would say is that I'm not trying to. I'll be silly and quote myself here, but my counterpart Brittany Depoy and I wrote this blog post a couple of years ago called "Hard and Soft Modularity," mm. and really what this blog post talks about. I think it's on Dev Two, the Practical Developer. What this blog post talks about is how soft modularity is sort of the original breaking code into information hiding units with the intent of increasing understandability, right? With making it easier to think about, reason about, whatever you want to say, right? Work with, maintain. So yes. being able to understand those, let's we don't have to use the term module, we can call them components, however you want to do it, right? Sure. So when the components are purely a code boundary, that's really soft modularity in the original sense, like you were talking about. What I think Brittany's amazing contribution to this conversation has been, has really been about hard modularity and understanding that when you physically separate capable, when you physically separate functions into, I don't know, maybe services certainly, but also like, you know, libraries or artifacts or however you want to, however you want to want to deal with it, that aspect is pretty profound and has a really profound impact. And she terms that hard modularity, right? So I think that I think that you can see that the Elixir Erlang beam world, OTP basically, right, is one extreme of that spectrum, which is very much soft modularity. That is like the best embodiment of soft modularity. And you could say that another language which is in which let's say that modularity is not as idiomatic as it is in OTP languages, right? You could say that a well-written monolith in something like Ruby or, I don't know, Rust or Go or Java, right? Whatever language you want to say, those 
are also a well-written monolith that has good organization and good modularity. Soft, that's soft modularity also. As soon as you split it up into separate code bases or separate artifacts or deployable elements or whatever, the hardware argument, just like you said earlier, which is why I loved it so much, right? That's hard modularity. So another argument that I've heard in favor of microservices is that it lets different teams choose different technologies and have more independence and autonomy over those things. Like, for example, let's say we have three different teams. They've each got their own microservices, their own databases. One of them chooses Postgres and Python. Another one chooses MySQL and Ruby. Another one chooses you know TypeScript and Mongo. So they can all talk to each other as long as they agree on some sort of, you know, protocol for communication. And that's viewed as a positive. But I I think I'm not sold on that being a positive, honestly. I mean, one thing that can a downside that can happen if you have unrestricted, like you don't even have conventions about like what databases and things like that to use is that it means it's really hard to share code across the whole organization. You have some piece of logic Okay, let me go on a quick tangent about code reuse. Do it, do it. <laughs> I'm a big fan of thinking about code reuse in terms of bugs. I know that the popular way to think about code reuse is in terms of conciseness. Like, okay, tangent within a tangent. <laughs> so there's dry, right? Don't repeat yourself. I looked up the original quote of where don't repeat yourself came from. And it has almost, it's almost the opposite of what people commonly use it to mean. Like the original quote was in the context of the book in which it was written was something along the lines of there should be one single unambiguous piece of knowledge. In other words, source of truth for every like piece of information in your system. So really that's actually about like not having competing sources of truth within your code base. But what it's interpreted to mean is code duplication is bad. It has nothing to do with code duplication at all. In fact, sometimes like code duplication is actually better because it can prevent bugs. So let me give you an example. Let's say I have two pieces of code that I have written and I'm trying to decide, should I make these two pieces of code share code or not? Like I see that they have like some, some lines of code that are identical between these two functions, let's say. Should I you know, refactor it such that there's not that duplication anymore? And the answer is either yes or no, but it depends in my mind, like the way that I prefer to write code, not based on conciseness, but rather based on future bug considerations. So let's say that in the future, I make a change to one of these functions. What should happen to the other one? There's two possible answers there. One is it shouldn't affect the other one. These are independent functions. Yeah, they happen to share a piece of logic, but that's just a coincidence. It's not actually like they're coupled semantically in terms of what they should do. They just happen to have some code that does the same thing. In that case, if I change the piece of shared code to update the first one, I could break the second one because I decided to make them share code. Of course, conversely, the opposite could also be true, which is that maybe it's actually really important that these two functions do that thing in the same way. And I actually want to have them share code so that if I make changes to the shared code, it corrects the other one as well. So that they're still working the same way, because if they ever work differently in that one particular way, then it's, it's going to cause a problem. But like both of those can happen. And there's no hard and fast rule that says, like, oh, you should always reduce code duplication, or you should always have code duplications. Like, no, it, it depends on whether the things are, are coupled and like it, when one changes, should the other one change? There's no single answer to that. The answer is sometimes it should change and sometimes it shouldn't change depending on <laughs> whether they're supposed to actually share logic. That to me is 
like how we should think about code duplication and reuse. But detour out of that tangent, I want to pause it. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> on that? My thoughts, I really like what you said. There's a great, in terms of sharing logic, I think that sharing is a, another word for reuse, which gets to your, mm. your enclosing tangent, right? Um, yeah. And I, I really agree with what you're saying because it, it, and this is such a computer scientist answer, like such a BS cop out, but like it depends, Richard, right? It depends, <laughs> right? But it's true. It does depend because if you have two things that are, that are, that have code in, in common somewhere down the call stack or whatever, then you need to be careful with that, right? And yeah. Not every program can be this ideal functional programming, lots of small functions, which you string together at the last possible second, right? Like that's wonderful for books and textbooks and maybe even small projects. But I think that you and I know that in the real world, it's not always that pretty. So it really does depend on, you know, the the change blast radius, right? Can vary tremendously. I think, okay. The change blast rate is absolutely can vary tremendously. And I think that code reuse is like an important tool in limiting those things, which brings me back to the, the previous point about like monoliths and microservices, which is if you've got a whole bunch of different programming languages in your environment, that limits your ability to literally share code. Yes. So if you have some piece of business logic that's really important to your organization, and it's really important that that thing be correct, and also that that logic maybe changes over time. Like um, there are lots of organizations that have rules like business logic rules or like, you know, promotions or like, like you said, messy stuff like Rich Hickey always, the example he always gives in his talks is two for Tuesdays where he used to work for a radio station that had very strict rules. He would, he would do programming to like to select, you know, do song selection and stuff like that. And like one of the rules was you should never play the artist, same artist back to back because that's boring. People don't want to hear that except on two for Tuesdays because two for Tuesdays was this promotion that they had where on Tuesdays you would explicitly hear the same artists back to back. That was the, that was the gimmick. And so it's like, you can have, all sorts of business logic rules like this that are kind of messy and edge casey. And if you can't share code across your whole organization, that's just going to be way more error prone to get right. You you get a new edge case like this that is just not due to any technical reason. It's just that's what the business needs. And now you have n different languages where you have to correctly implement that edge case in the rule as opposed to being able to share code and have it, you know, get it right across, you know, all, all the different places because they're all sharing code. I totally agree. I think that it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous precedent to set of, you know, never sharing code and re-implementing it everywhere. And at the same time, it also leads to, like you said, coupling, right? Where you can become coupled to the same logic routine. And I think that what it, what it really comes down to, and this is something that you have been implying is really interface stability, right? If the interfaces are stable, you can make underlying changes. When the interfaces are unstable, it becomes much harder because then the change blast radius and the coupling can expand pretty dramatically. And I, I've seen it go. I've seen it go. I've been responsible for it going wrong, right? Like, you know, like <laughs> I've been, I've, I've been on projects and worked on products where it's gone poorly, and uh, yeah, and I've been there, right? And you don't always see it when you're there, which is so hard, right? Because hindsight yeah. is 2020, right? So you can look back and be like, I should have seen this. I've been through this. I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends, right? And you're like, uh, no. Do you have any, uh, any, any particular stories that come to mind? <laughs> a recent product that I was working on had a monolithic API 
and maybe this is an instance of where I did see it coming, but one of the other engineers, one of the people who I was working with, they kept sort of alluding to, well, eventually we're going to have to move this to microservices. And I remember saying, why? Each API endpoint that provides a capability has such a, they have so much in common. They share authentication, they share interfacing with, with, other, with other services. So, you know, what you're saying is we'd have to release a connector library that all of these microservices could share because now they don't have a code base in common. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's possible to write it in one code base and deploy it in many. I I totally get that. But by that point, you're sort of like, what's the point? Right. Like, like, why would you why would you do that? What's the benefit? What's the benefit? Right. What problem is it solving? Right. So I have heard and, and this hopefully is less true today, but there was a time when what I heard was that the problem that that it was solving to take a code base that like works well as a monolith has no hardware scaling needs to to go into multiple services. And honestly, the pitch was these are modules that we can actually rely on because the programming languages we're using don't have, you know, like you use the term soft modularity. Maybe it's like it's, it's like flimsy modularity where maybe uh, C is a good example of this. This wasn't the language that, you know, people were citing, of course, but I'll use it because it won't offend anybody. <laughs> the thing about C is that when you include another file into your C thing, it just literally copy pastes the, the entire contents in, yeah. of the file. In. There's no modularity there at all. It's, it's There's no boundary. It's just like you have access to everything. And right. at, at absolute best, you get like, well, try to use careful naming of your functions to express, hey, you shouldn't rely on this, even though you could. But of course, as an organization gets bigger, there's this temptation, increasing temptation to make use of things that are marked as by convention, please don't use this even though you could, which in turn means people depend on it, which in turn means you make a change to this thing that you tried to say, look, nobody's allowed to depend on this so that I can make changes to it. And then it breaks something and then they call you up and say, well, you can't make that change. And then you just got a mess. I'm reminded of, I genuinely don't think this was trolling, but I mean, if it was, it was it was very well done. <laughs> There's a function in React uh, JS called something along the lines of never use this or you will be fired. <laughs> like that's like the name of the function. <laughs> it actually says like, or else you will be fired, like in the name of the function. And it's like uh, the rest of the function name is like maybe something like unsafe set, whatever, you know, like never, ever use it. And of course, it's some sort of like intended to be internal only thing. But for whatever reason, it needed to be exposed in a way where People could call it if they if they you know really wanted to, and obviously the team tried very hard to make it clear this is not. If you think that you're supposed to use this, you you shouldn't. And there was an issue on the React repo where basically somebody's saying like, "Hey, I want to use this thing. I have a use case where I think it's useful. You know, is it it's safe for me to use this? Is it fine for me to use this?" And like the answer is like, "Of course not. What? <laughs> Why do you think we went as far as it could possibly go to name this thing in a way that says don't use this?" And then of course somebody's coming along saying. I want to use this. And I think that's where you get into, like, if that's the language that you're working with, and those are the constraints that you're working with, you just don't have a way to express, this cannot be used. Like, I am creating this thing and designing it in a way so that my future self will not be handcuffed by the fact that other people could make use of this thing and break things, or that my changes could break their code, and then they would be able to come back and say, hey, you can't make that change. And I was like, but I, I need to be able to make this change. I planned for this change in the future. I laid the groundwork. Like being able to actually have a module boundary that says you cannot depend on this is a huge difference. And that was part of the pitch for microservices in some organizations. It's like, look, we're using languages where we don't have a way to do that. Guess what's an actual hard boundary? A server. 
<laughs> I mean, you you cannot reach into my server. You can't even see the code. All you can, all, the only interface you can use to communicate with it is over the network, and that's great because it actually works. Like it's it's actually a real boundary. But like you said, you don't need a hard modularity boundary for that. You can get that with soft modularity as long as the language actually enforces it. Yes, I will say two things. One, I agree with you. And I love that you talked about protecting future you from present you, right? Yeah. I, I'm all about that because I make mistakes all the time and I want to try oh, yeah. to limit the the damage of those down the road. That's one. And two is I don't know too many people writing microservices in C. <laughs> or right which is which is really yeah. interesting to me but i, I mean I right really but like you know this this the react example was a javascript example right like there's sure. definitely ways that people can get around things in all sorts of you know very widely used programming languages uh, which is not to say c is not widely used but yeah I, I agree not not a lot of microservice uh activity happening in c yeah and yet you know people still want to move to microservices even when it doesn't solve a problem that they have. Yeah. And on the topic of reuse and problem solving, there's a great article, I believe, by Uwe Fredrickson called The Broken Promise of Reuse. It's got to be from five years ago or so. And it's a really good take on code sharing, functionality sharing, and reuse, and so on and so forth. And it just reminds me that if you split things up, sharing becomes hard. If you keep them together, you end up with, with coupling all, all kinds of really interesting things fall out of that. But yeah, I mean, back to the original gripe, I'm really annoyed with, you know, people adopting tools or techniques that don't actually help them with a problem that they have, right? Which is one of the reasons I'm on Team Monolith, right? Um, (laughs) However, I also see it with Kubernetes a lot. People are moving to Kubernetes because they think they should, not because they have a problem which Kubernetes solves. Because it's like the thing to do as opposed to, yeah. I mean, well, so both of those, I think, are, are interesting examples of, like, why would someone adopt a technology that is at face value obviously more complex than what they were doing before if it doesn't actually solve a problem they have if it i'm definitely not trying to say monoliths are bad kubernetes are bad we moved to kubernetes it made a lot of sense like there were a lot of very specific pain points that we were like this is going to take a long time it's going to be expensive but like we cannot keep living with x y and z like we have to solve this and this seems like and and we looked at lots of alternatives (laughs) but anyway having said that for the specific situation of doing it for the sake of, because it seems like the thing to do as opposed to because it solves a specific problem you can cite. In both of those cases, there's definitely an element of sort of like culture and conferences and like, I mean, you you can't really write a blog post about like the way we've always been doing it's better, you know? Like, I mean, you can eventually, but only after the other thing has gotten popular, after the new and shiny thing has gotten popular. But you sure can write a lot of blog posts, give a lot of conference talks, do a lot of YouTube videos about wow, new exciting thing. Is this the revolution? You know, this is this is going to make everything so much better, which in some cases, I mean, definitely there are advancements in technology where it's like, oh yeah, that's that's good. That's really good. Yeah, everybody should probably start using this by default. Like the, the biggest example I can think of is garbage collection where mm. it really, the number of like, I don't know, quality of life improvements that came along with garbage collection, I think is very high and it shouldn't be used for everything, obviously. But like, just the fact that, I mean, I remember growing up, I, I first learned basic and then visual basic, and then I got into C++ and I would make my code segfault all the time. I'd have memory corruption. It was just, I was just like, I, I can't do this well. I, I like, I'm just, I, I have no confidence that my program is not like horribly broken. And I'm, I'm, of course I had bugs and stuff, but like, 
it was just a totally different level of bugs. And so just getting to see like, oh, this is what all programming used to be like was just kind of like, wow, I really don't think I should have taken this garbage collection thing for granted. <laughs> I didn't know that that was like, this is a way that, that programs could break. But uh, not every advancement is like that. Some of them are, you know, and garbage collection is no different in that it's not always applicable, but like most of the time for most programming problems that most people have, it is. It's just like, it's a pretty good fit. Automatic memory management. But uh, sometimes it's not. But not all technologies are like that in the sense that most of them are the other way around. Most of them are like, it's a new advancement, but you probably shouldn't use this by default. Like, actually, you should probably stick to the default that we had before. And if you have a very specific use case, sure, maybe this is going to help you out. But it's not like, you know, if we, if everybody in the programming community decided that every new technology that comes out and gets a couple of posts on Hacker News is something they should adopt right away, <laughs> it would not serve them well. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, right? Yeah. Because the hype cycle is so real. And I oftentimes, you know, listen, I'm, I'm as excitable as the next practitioner, right? I love new sure. stuff. It's cool. Oh, yeah. New stuff is great, right? Do I play around with it on my personal computer? Sometimes, yeah. Do I immediately put my eggs in that basket? No, I, I don't, right? And do I sometimes yeah. have to hold myself back from making the jump from I'd like to play with it to I'm willing to get called at 3 a.m. over it, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's a very different that, that's a very different leap. And yeah, I do sometimes have to hold myself back. So I'm as guilty as the next person on that. I think that as an industry, we do have a we do have a resume driven development problem, right? And I, <laughs> I don't know I don't know what the solution for that is other than also tackling the interview process as well. Oh yeah. Interview processes are a whole thing. I definitely, um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on this, but like I have some pretty strong opinions about interview processes and especially like, uh, I see a lot of, how should I say this? Like apologyism for, for interview processes where people are like, well, the reason that these, you know, brain teaser type interviews are done is that they really work well. And I'm, I'm just very not convinced of that. Right. <laughs> I, uh, like the way that we interview at No Red Inc. is like a process I, I'm very happy with. And it's very like every single interview, like all, all the technical interviews specifically, like, okay, there's like conversational interviews, whatever, like that's a kind of a different ball of wax, but like specifically technical interviews, I assume is what we're, we're focused on here. Yeah. Like all of our technical interviews are like, use your own machine, use your own development environment, use whatever language you want. Google whatever you want, like use the internet, just act as if you were like, you know, solving this problem on the job. And the problem that you're given is like, build a thing using whatever technology you like. It's like, pretend that a PM came to you and said, Hey, we want to build a thing that does blah. And of course, it's chosen to be something that's like, small enough to fit in the, you know, the time constraints of an interview. But it's like, yeah, just it's just you're building software. Like, one of my heuristics for a good interview is like, how much would studying for this interview help someone? And the best answer is zero. It's just the same right. stuff you would do on your job. You just, instead of like doing your job, we just like watch you doing something that's like what you would do on your job and then ask you questions about it as if you were like pair programming, but like your pair is like never driving and just like, you know, only like learning. Like it's like the, the interviewer is like a, someone who just joined the company and doesn't know anything about what you're doing, just has questions for you about, you know, they're just trying to learn. I don't know why you would want to evaluate people in a different way than that. Like we want to see you do the job and understand how you think about the 
like the stuff that you do on the job. Like why, why would you want to give people brain teasers that are like multiple steps removed or even worse trivia that does not come up on the job? That, that one just blows my mind. It's like, like why would you be like, yeah, let's, let's do stuff with binary trees. It's like, Oh, do you guys do a lot of binary tree stuff at that place? No, not zero. When we do, we, we do import binary tree. Right. <laughs> right yeah, like, exactly. In fact, right. in fact yeah. when you're on the job, if you need a binary tree and you write your own, you're fired. Right. Like, I, that's what has to I, be. No, I, I, that's not even hyperbolic. I worked at a place once where a guy was fired once and I asked the manager why. And the thing that they cited was, and this was a, it was a PhD and, you know, maybe it was like, this was just his, you know, inclination, but it was like, he would spend a bunch of time writing his own sorting algorithms. And his boss was like, this is not a good use of time. Stop. Don't do that. It's first of all, like we found a bug in your sorting algorithm right away. Second of all, I'm not even sure if it's more efficient than an off the shelf thing. Third of all, this is not on the hot path. So just use an off the shelf sorting algorithm. And like, but he was just like, no, I gotta, I gotta do it my way with the, and yet (laughs) in an interview process, a lot of places will be like, well, we gotta know that you know how to do, you know, a sorting algorithm from scratch, even though we might later fire you if you use it. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. That's, that's a wild story. I I knew a guy who uh, he ran a small company and he was the prime developer. So he was lone wolf and uh, he was pretty convinced that he had to resize his own arrays because he was like, I don't trust the built-in type that has a resizable, that has auto resizing built into it. I don't trust that. So I'm going to write my own. And I was like, Dude, com- first of all, computers are fast now. You don't have to do that. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, like you really think, I think it was the .NET thing. I'm like, you really think that .NET, which was at the time very new, you know, you you really think that .NET is going to be like, like they're going to have fewer bugs and worse performance than you random, random dude. Right. <laughs> and that, and that was really, that was sort of an interesting discussion for me to have as a, as a, as an early career person. Yeah. To play the other side, like there have definitely been times in my career where doing something exotic was like the only way to make a thing work. I I still remember one of my proudest moments. This is like a few years ago was we hired someone on the product side who who used to work for a competitor. And I was like, oh, did you when you worked there, did you ever look at our stuff? And like, what did you think of it? And uh, what this person mentioned was a particular interface that that I'd worked on. And like, I was the main developer behind this thing. And I spent a ton of time working on this thing. This is actually like the, the project that led us to, to Elm because it was there was so many iterations that, that went on through it. And the design kept getting more and more exotic because when we would take it out and try the previous design on actual students in the classroom, it just was not working. But finally got it. It was incredibly complicated to implement, but it worked and students just got it. It was very intuitive and I was I was super proud of it, even though it you know took a, a long time. And what they said was, yeah, we always really liked that interface. It was really nice. But when I told our engineers to try to build something like that, they just couldn't like they couldn't do it. They couldn't actually pull it off. And I was like, yeah, nice. <laughs> it's just it was so cool. Just like, I don't know, like the, the feeling of like being able to do something that it, it was just validated, like how hard and challenging it was. And that one, as it happened, wasn't to do with like uh, trees or searching or anything like that. But I can appreciate that there might be some certain cases where you genuinely need to reach for something very unusual. And that's the actually like the best and only way to solve the problem maybe but you're not going to predict that in an interview it's not going to be like oh yeah very occasionally we need to do a binary search tree and you have to implement it from scratch because it's going to be all custom and stuff like that no 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 no. like 
the exotic cases are going to be really unusual and you can't like the, the whole point of an interview is to like you know assess the the person's like abilities and like their suitability for the job why would you spend precious interview time trying to take one sh- random shot in the dark and like hopefully this one extremely esoteric thing that we're going to ask about happens to be happens to line up exactly with the esoteric thing that you're going to need on the job like no 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 whenever, whenever those things come up you're always learning on the job you're going to go read like you know papers or like obscure libraries and like tweak them for your own purposes it's it's gonna be something that you didn't walk into the job being a master of already so i just don't think there's any 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 way to defend like that interviewing practice i've never heard any good defense of it but that's such a great point i mean finding the right tool for the right job sometimes means going off the beaten path right yeah and i've been in this situation a couple times right because you know once or twice you know, I've had, I've said like, you know, we should really look at the research and see if someone else has solved this problem. And they were like, look at the research. No, this is a practical shop, whatever. You're being too theoretical. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then I found the solution and did it. And it was done. And they were like, oh, how did you do that? And I'm like, I read a paper and they were like, oh, well, once it worked. Right. And I'm like, okay, fine. And then there was another time where there was a SQL query that I could not, I could not get the SQL query right. So I translated it in from SQL into set theory solved it, and then translated it back into SQL. And everyone thought I was a wizard. And I'm like, no, I just, what? That doesn't make any sense. We've all learned this. Okay, whatever. And then there was another time when I was at another shop where this was when I was in startup world. And there, and I, they had sort of like had this go, go, go culture that I really have tried to stay away from since then. And because, you know, I think the biggest red flag for me is when there ceases to be a difference between good work and bad work, there's only done work, right? Oh, man. You you know what I'm talking about? And and in this case, I hadn't really been at my roots and I was dealing with this front end problem that was communication with with our APIs and so on and so forth. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a distributed systems problem. I'm just going to go back to my roots and solve it. And I did. And again, they like thought I was a wizard. Well, I mean, not then. At the time, they were like, oh, good, you got it working, right? How did you do, how did you do that, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Which from them was high praise, right? But I really think that there's something to be said for going off the beaten path and picking the right tool for the right job, even if that means going back to what you learned in school, which, by the way, it always irritated me, Richard, when people would say things like, oh, you never learn what you – sorry, you never use what you learn in school. And I'm like, if you're lucky, you do, right? If you have one of the fun jobs <laughs> where you get to do the cool stuff, yeah, you do use what you learned in school. It right? doesn't mean you have to. If you don't like the stuff you learned in, in school, then that job isn't for you. No big deal, right? Everyone's right for different things and wants to work on different stuff. That's great. That's part of what makes our industry so wonderful and full of this amazing, diverse set of people. However, for me, I found it really fun. And I was lucky that I was able to land in a couple jobs in my career, including the one I'm at now, where I get to, to focus on using the right thing to solve the problem at hand. You know what's funny? I learned, you know, I, I took like a whole course in college on like a low level, like assembly, you know, machine instruction stuff, and then never used it for like a decade after graduation and forgot it all. And now I actually am using some of that stuff. I had to go back and relearn it. Awesome. <laughs> if I just timed it better, I could have, I could have uh, gotten more mileage out of it. <laughs> it's that's really funny because there's a lot of stuff that my faculty in university who I still talk to, Dr. Sherry Shulman and Dr. Neil Nelson. I still talk to them and I remember them scolding me like you can't rely on your intuition for tree rotations. You have to, you actually have to figure it out and understand how it works and et cetera. And, uh, and still to this day, I don't think I would be able to 
do a tree rotation if I hadn't listened to them, right? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. <laughs> so, so so it's okay to to relearn stuff because if you put me on the spot right now, I'd be like, I don't know, right? But 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 if you, if you put it in front of me, I would know how to learn it again because they sort of taught me how to learn, and that's I think a really valuable skill. To be educable is more important than being educated. Going back to interviews, like it's actually something that we try a little bit to interview for that to some extent in the sense that like hopefully like the the interview is designed to be something where like there's a low chance that you'll know something and like we want to see you go try to you know look that thing up because that comes up on the job all the time like even in small ways like just like looking up a library or something that we've never used before like i mean what percentage of programming can be done without learning something new that you didn't know previously i mean there's a pretty small set of problems that can be solved where you just sit down and you're like, I know absolutely everything that's necessary to solve this thing. Now, granted, okay, I, I should say, if you have an unlimited amount of time, sure. Because right. you can you can do everything yourself from scratch. You're like, I'm not going to use any libraries. I'm going to have no internet connection. I'm just going to like build this entire thing. I'm reminded of, um, there's this YouTube series called Handmade Hero. Casey Muratori basically builds, he, he live streams, building an entire like professional quality game with like graphics and you know everything from scratch live streams the entire process and basically doesn't use any like packages or like off-the-shelf stuff he just starts with like c and like a terminal and like let's go we're gonna build this entire game from scratch and that's that's the the thing and it's very cool i've watched some of it and like i definitely learn things because Usually you just have like, you know, libraries that you that you use for a bunch of stuff, right? And he's like, nope, the only libraries we're using are the Windows APIs. Let's go. <laughs> and like, that's it. And that's, that's the whole, you know, the whole thing. And that's really cool. And like, I think valuable, but I would probably get fired if I did that. Anywhere I've worked in my career where I was just like, I'm insisting on doing everything from scratch. I'm not going to use any packages. I'm not going to use any libraries. I'm not going to, you know use my internet connection to like find answers on stack overflow. No, I'm going to do everything's going to come straight out of my brain. There's definitely an element of if everybody did that, we would be stuck at some point. We just like lose generational knowledge would be really bad. And you know, some of that does happen to some extent and that's not ideal, but at the same time, like it's just, you can get stuff done. That's high quality so much faster if you actually make use of stuff that other people have have done, like co- code and documentation and all that stuff. Yeah, we're always standing on the shoulders of giants. And that's that's awesome because that's one of the reasons that in interviews, I like to say, we're going to write some code together, right? Please share your whole screen with no external monitors, right? Precisely because if you look something up, I want to be able to watch you do it, right? I want to see your process and understand that. And at least for me, when selecting for good candidates, it's so much more important to find the right kind of person who's going to bring something valuable to my team culture and who cares about the same things that I care about. You think like if they can't look it up, that's a bigger warning sign than than anything else, right? I mean, to your point, we're always standing on the shoulders of giants. So if there's someone who's going to lose their balance while they're up there, I want to know about it soon so I can at least determine if it's coachable or not. Yeah. And you know, I now that I say this, I'm I'm even remembering like one of the earliest handmade hero streams. Like Casey was looking up some sort of he's like I, I don't know the you know the exact signature for this Win- Windows API function off the top of my head. I'm going to go on MSDN and look it up. 
And it was like, for, it's like opening a window or something, something really basic. And then he saw it. And he's like, oh, this isn't like how I remembered it. Or maybe they changed it or something. He's like, okay, fine. Well, I see, I see what it's looking for. And let's just, you know, use it like, great. That's exactly the type of thing that, you know, even if you're at, at the level of like, I'm, I'm going to not use any third party dependencies, it still comes up. I'm a hundred percent with you. And I mean, it's so much more important. I'll reuse the words that I use. It's so much more important to be educable than it is to be educated. And even for the the real, you know, amazing mavens, right? Who can do everything that they that they want to do on their own. Like, God bless them, but I'm not them. I look stuff up all the time and I'm fine with it. I, that doesn't <laughs> worry me at all. It doesn't bother me. I'm always learning new things. And to your point where you have to you have to learn something to fix most problems. Um, one of my friends and mentors, Dr. Stephanie Arzanetti Height, she has this quote, which is learn your way out of it, right? She's a really gifted like educator um, and a really, she coaches teachers and does service design and stuff. But her whole thing is every problem you got to learn your way out of, right? That's sort of part of it. And that really resonates with me and it jives nicely with what I think you said. Yeah. I had an experience with that recently, which was doing like UTF-8 decoding in, uh, in Unicode. And it was this thing where like, I always... I knew some things about like UTF-8 and UTF-16 and you know, these other formats. And I, I knew why UTF-8 was like efficient and cool and like you know, space efficient, but I didn't actually, I never quite went as far as to like look up exactly how it works. Like what's the actual encoding, like what's going on with the bits? Or maybe I glanced at it and I was like, oh, there's like ones and zeros happening here. I don't, okay, whatever. But at some point I was like, okay, I have this performance question. And like the the answer to this question has implications on like, like some pretty high level API designs, I actually like don't know what I should do and like learn your way out of it ended up being the solution here where I was like, why don't I just try to implement actual UTF-8 decoding? Like, first of all, I can use that. But second of all, like then I'll actually know like what's going on under the hood. And it turns out it's like, it's, it's not that complicated. It's like, it's kind of fiddly. It's like there's, there are some ones and zeros or some like bits going on, but like, you can teach it to anyone like in a, in a pretty short period of time, as it turns yeah. out. It's like, it's like, oh, this is a, it's a pretty well-designed thing. And things like that, I think as programmers, we can often get so stuck in these like really high-level things that we forget we can learn low-level things too, like really low-level things. Like you can learn about like CPU instructions and like they actually still feel like programming. They're just, it's like a different type of programming. And I guess like distributed systems it's probably this case there too, where you can tell me, but uh, my sense is that at the end of the day, it's a specialization where like everything that you're doing that has to do with like all these considerations that, you know, don't come up if you're working on a single machine, it's still programming. It's just that there's, there's a lot of aspects to it that if you don't know about that world, if you're not like, you know, immersed in that world, you wouldn't think of, but once someone explains it to you, you can be like, okay, I understand now. Right. I'm with you. There's a whole category of things which are also obvious if known. And there's this book that I've been told to read several times, but I haven't read yet, obviously, which is called, I think it's called Everything is Obvious, right? Everything is Obvious. And it, wow. I haven't read it. I haven't read it, but the title is great. And I'm just going to totally judge a book by its cover and say like, oh yeah, I know what that's about. And let me tell you. Well, yeah, because everything's things, obvious, right? Everything's obvious. Right? <laughs> there, there are a lot of things that make me feel really stupid in life. Because I'm like, oh, I, I should have been able to figure that out. But you can't. You're just a human and it's okay. You're like a meat computer and you're doing the best you can. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just gradually making peace with that fact as I go through life. So, yeah. 
Are, aren't Maybe we all? That's what it is. Aren't, aren't we all trying to make to make peace with our our meat computation? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Is there anything else we should talk about that we haven't already covered? Well, you and I have had some wonderful conversations over the time that we've known each other, and I ranked this among the best of them. So maybe we should nice. quit while we're ahead. Do a <laughs> do a sign club. I peaked, so I'm going to leave. Right? <laughs> you nice. and I have peaked, my friend. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This is a nice one, Richard. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too.